You're listening to On the Road, Our Way, the archive of the podcast formerly known as Women on the Road from 2017 to 2020, hosted and produced by Laura Borshevsky and a production of Rabble Media. We're hoping you've heard by now, but the Women on the Road campout is happening, and tickets are live. The second annual in-person outdoor weekend event for women and female-identifying individuals interested in road travel will be happening October 4th through 6th near Moab, Utah. And we'd love to see you there in whatever vehicle works for you. Campers, trucks, cars, buses, tents, and more are all welcome. For more information and to register for the campout, head to womenontheroadpodcast.com slash campout. We truly can't wait to see you in person and look forward to our paths crossing in Moab this fall. Also, just a quick heads up. This episode contains stories of death and grieving, as well as substance abuse and addiction, so it may not be suitable for all ears. This episode of Women on the Road is brought to you by Merrill. Merrill believes there isn't just one way to get where we're going. And as travelers who are drawn to new destinations by the outdoor journeys that await, that's something we can completely relate to, especially when it comes to seeking out new trails. Merrill's goal is to provide thoughtfully designed, rigorously tested products that overdeliver on performance, versatility, and durability. So you'll be prepared for whatever trail the road takes you to. Stay tuned for later in this episode when we hear from Merrill Ambassador Erica Lang, an artist based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who shares about the end of summer travel she's taking with her partner out to Vancouver Island and the hiking boots she plans on packing for their adventure. Learn more at Merrill.com. At that point, I went out and I bought my van the same week. I said, all I really want is for my dad to see me go do what I want to do. I want him to see that I'm going to be happy. I want him to know that after he passes, I am going to be okay. I'm going to hurt. Oh boy, am I going to hurt. But I'm going to be happy. I'm Laura Hughes, and you're listening to Women on the Road, a podcast to bring you closer to some of the honest experiences that life on the road has to offer from the perspective of women who've lived them firsthand. You'll hear this from the start, but Sloan Thomas is full of purpose when it comes to this chapter of her life. A solo traveler, long-distance runner, and lover of the outdoors, Sloan took off in her van earlier this year after a challenging life chapter gave her every reason to fully embrace life, the ups, downs, and everything in between. When you choose to hit the road, Sometimes it's easy to feel like you're running away from something, or taking a permanent vacation, or avoiding the realities of life within a community. But Sloan is a living example that it's not only possible to embrace your own reality while living on the road, but in fact, it's our duty to do so. We start things off with Sloan telling me a bit about the van she travels in with her two dogs, and the activities she likes to do while she's living an outdoor-based lifestyle. I am currently traveling in my Sprinter. It is a 170 four-wheel drive. Yes, it is the big one. And yes, it is a lot to drive on some of the roads that I take it down. It feels like you get outdoors a lot living on the road, which not everybody does. Some people are, you know, traveling homebodies, which is totally cool, too. You know, you're still getting out there traveling, but people want to spend time in their van a lot. And you have a beautiful van, which I want to ask you more about later, but... I see that you get outside a lot, too, and and go, you know, hit the trails in the wilderness areas. You know, for me, and I've seen this a lot, at least with what you've shared online, too, it seems like you go out and you're, like, very multi-sport. There's, like, 
hiking, mountain biking, trail running. I know that you've been looking at rafts because you and I have talked about pack rafts. How do you accommodate for all of that in your vehicle or do you? Like how do you stay multi-sport while you're traveling and kind of packing light, I guess? So for me, it's always a question of what do I want to do and what passion do I want to focus on the most? So I'm currently hauling around with me two skateboards and a road bike and a mountain bike. And I also have all my climbing gear, all my backpacking gear. So I have a car camping tent, a backpacking tent, sleeping gear, bear canisters. So I have everything that I need to go do all of the sports that I love. And for me, I'm very lucky that my garage is ginormous. So I can fit the two bikes down there absolutely no problem. And I still have room to spare. So it's very much a matter of what I enjoy the most and what I'll make room for. So for me, I'm not road biking currently. So I'm thinking, you know, okay, I'll sell my road bike because I'm not using it. And I'll go buy a bike to go do bike packing instead of having a road bike. So it's all about switching out what I have for what is currently feeding my soul. So road biking isn't calling to me right now. So I don't need to carry it around with me. So that's kind of how... I do it. And a lot of my sports like running, all I have to do is carry running shoes around with me. So I try and mix it. So I use some items that require a lot of gear. So I don't snowboard. So I'm very lucky in that aspect that I don't have all the snow gear to be carrying around with me. I just have all the summer sports, which I just say I forever chase summer, but I basically just haul around a mountain bike. And that's my biggest item right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a smart way to go about it. I found myself personally while I was traveling, cycling through, yeah, those big pieces yearly or seasonally or, you know, whatever was needed at the time because, yeah, you just can't carry it all, but you have endless potential to be able to go do any sport that you want because you can just travel to these places that are like hubs for these sports. So renting stuff too has like helped a lot to make that more accessible, but it's nice to have your own gear. You know, I feel bad about spending money on these bigger items because I save for a while to buy myself these items, but then I always justify it because I say, I am living this lifestyle because I want to do all of those things. So I'd rather, you know, be stressed out for a little bit about money and get myself those things because the enjoyment that I get out of being able to do those activities is worth it. Mm hmm. Definitely. Are you training for anything in particular right now? Because I know that you've ran races and stuff in the past before you hit the road. Do you still do any type of more structured training or is this all like for fun and enjoyment hitting the trails? Currently, I am about to start training for a marathon. So I'm actually going to start that here on August 1st. I had previously qualified for the Boston Marathon and I didn't get to run it because My life circumstances just didn't allow me to. I had to have surgery and everything like that. So now that I am six months post-surgery, I'm starting to feel okay in my running and as though my body can kind of handle that training because it's very intense and the way I train is extremely intense and focused. So I'm planning to try and find a marathon around January to run. That'll qualify me for Boston. So then I will run Boston in 2021. So Boston's a little crazy because you have to qualify for it. But the signups for Boston are in September. So 
I couldn't qualify for Boston in 2020 because I'd have to run a marathon to qualify this month. And there's absolutely no way I could get in race shape to run a 330 marathon by August. So I'm giving myself the time to train and try and run a sub three hour marathon. (laughs) So I'm going to train really hard this time to try and run a pretty known fast course up in, uh, I think it's in San Francisco or the Bay Area, to try and get that sub three hour marathon time because I'm pretty sure I'll qualify for Boston unless something goes absolutely haywire and my hip just can't handle it. But I'm fairly confident that qualifying for Boston is well within my reach. Sloan has only been running with this level of focus for the past few years, but she used to train as a competitive CrossFit athlete before she made the switch. I say that I retired because my body just was done with it. And I was working so much at the time. I was working like 80 hours a week and I just didn't have any brain capacity to do any type of like weight training or anything like that. So I just started running because it was a way to get out and still exercise, but it took absolutely zero mental capacity. I could just put on music and just go. So for me, it kind of started as a way to just keep my mind from like racing a thousand miles an hour and slowly but surely I started really loving it. So now I I have a joke with everyone. I say I would rather go out and run 20 miles than go run a four mile sprint any day of the week. I completely agree with that. And I, you know, I'm not as invested in running as you are, but I took up running a lot before I hit the road. And then I did it a lot while I was on the road full time because you never need more gear than like, you know, maybe a proper hydration pack, maybe if you're going to be out somewhere that's really hot and your shoes. And then it's nice to have a good pair of headphones. But if you don't, you can also still go running. Yeah, you know, you really only need your shoes. (laughs) And so it was a really accessible thing to do. Yeah, that's the best part about running. And that's what happened. I kind of got into it because I was traveling a lot overseas. And it was easy because I could just take a pair of running shoes with me and I could still work out even though I was traveling internationally. So it kind of all just made sense. And it's just stuck with me. Yeah, that's smart. And I mean, mine is traveling on the road in a vehicle, you know, or using other pieces of gear, I suppose. But you know, it's faster than moving just on foot walking to see different things. You know, you get to know different pieces of terrain and just feel your body in different climates too and just be out and like really experience a place by running through it. It's amazing. I don't enjoy trail running as much because I think I enjoy hiking in the sense that hiking I can do at a slower pace and I can really take in the views and I can stop and I can take photos and I can kind of, if I want to just sit in a certain spot that I find, I can meditate. So for me, I'm trying to get myself to enjoy trail running more, but I think I just, I love the slow pace of hiking and being able to stop and enjoy the nature. So for me, nature is very meditative, which is odd because I picked up mountain biking and that you just zip through the mountains and you just You know, you really don't see anything unless you're climbing up a hill and you're dying. So you stop to take a breather and you're like, oh, my gosh, look at this view. It's stunning. You know, I appreciate that you just flat out said that you're not totally invested in trail running and that it's not trail running is not your favorite thing, because I think a lot of people who spend time outdoors, at least for me, I feel like I need to tell people that like I do trail running, which I do, but I actually prefer to run on 
pavement because I don't have to think. And I'm not a fast runner, really. So for me, if I did trail running, it would probably be pretty akin to the same pace I hike because I'm a really fast hiker. But I just have to pay more attention to not tripping and falling on the trail. And so it's exciting, but it's also can be more stressful if you're just trying to zone out. And so I know when I'm running on pavement that I can still see beautiful landscapes, but I also just don't have to worry about what my feet are doing to that great of an extent. I know they're going to hit the pavement and just keep going. Yeah. And then also, you know, when you're trail running, you're having to pay attention to the trail. So if there's forks, you're having to always, you know, get your phone out if you're not familiar and make sure you stay on trail because the last thing you want to do is get lost out there while you're just trailblazing ahead running full steam. Absolutely. Yeah. You can get lost like exponentially faster. So I didn't even think about that, (laughs) which is why I don't trail run that often, I guess. I am always thinking about getting lost because my skills at geography are just ridiculous. I mean, I get lost very easily. (laughs) Do you use any particular tools when you're out on the trail then so that you feel confident when you're hiking? Oh, 100%. I live and die by all trails. Uh, Like 10 times over. I live and die by all trails if I'm hiking. If I am mountain biking, I pretty much always use trail forks. But in some areas, trail forks isn't as good. So you should use Mountain Bike Project, but I will use these ones and I'll download the map of the trail I'm going to go on so that way I can still shut my phone off onto airplane mode and it'll still track my location. So for me, especially since I do 90% of these things by myself, it gives me a sense of peace when I can see my location and I can see that I'm staying on the trail. So on all trails, you follow the red line and your blue dot stays on the red line. You're all good. And I also carry a Garmin in reach. So that way, if I don't have cell phone service, I can always get myself out. Or if something happens and my phone dies, I have the map on my in reach. So I'm kind of always 120% prepared because I take risks by doing these things by myself. So I've got to be as safe as possible. So that way I can do them by myself. While she typically travels solo, Sloan also embraces community starting with the first annual Women on the Road event we held last October. At the time, her cargo van was an empty shell, but it didn't stop her from driving it to Taos, New Mexico, and camping out with everyone. I didn't know anyone in this community, and I kind of took it as an opportunity to see other vans, to meet other people, and see what I was in for in this community, and make sure that, you know, it was something that I really wanted to do. I already had been backpacking and hiking and camping by myself, so I previously had a Jeep Wrangler, and I would pack my Jeep up, and I would go out to the wilderness in the backcountry all by myself for backpacking trips, car camping trips, hiking trips, and I would just go. And every time I came back, I would always say, I am such a better person when I'm out there. And I would come back to the city, to my life, to the routine, and I'd instantly be so angry, and I'd have so much anxiety And I was just unhappy. So I knew that making a shift into this life was what I needed. But the reason I started really getting into backpacking, getting into hiking, getting into traveling was my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And at the point he was diagnosed, I was, I think, about 25, 26 and having a major quarter life crisis. I had been a competitive CrossFit athlete. I had never seen anything besides the four walls in a gym. 
I was a gym rat my entire life. So when he got sick, it made me realize, you know, he's not able to do anything now. So everything that's still on his list that he wants to do and he wants to see, he can no longer do it. And I realized at 25, I was heading that direction. I was going to live a life of absolute no memories. And I didn't want that. So I started traveling and I started backpacking and I started hiking and I started doing all these backcountry adventures. And (laughs) I had actually never gone camping before. And a friend took me out on a backpacking trip. So we went up to Mammoth and my heart just skipped a beat. And I instantly knew that this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So that kind of started me on this whole backcountry wilderness exploring lifestyle and then my father's disease and just watching him deteriorate really gave me the push to move into a nomadic style of life. So I had been kind of deciding what vehicle I wanted to travel in. So when I was still working in an office and I was working hours on hours, I had talked about getting the super lightweight trailers and wanted to pull it with my Jeep. Because my lease was up on my house, and I just decided I'm never home. If I'm not at the office, I am always out in the wilderness. So there's plenty of property here that I can park a trailer on during the week and keep working. And then on the weekends, I could take my home, and I could go out to the backcountry. And then I started hearing about schoolies. Then I was like, no, that's too much work. So then I was like, oh, I'll do a motorhome. And then I realized they were just too big. So then finally I was like, okay, fine. I'll do a van. And I kind of made the decision that I was going to do the van, but I was just sitting on it. And I was just sitting on it. I was like, ah, you know, I can't find the right van. Can't find this. Can't find that. Every excuse in the book. Every single one. In September, my father got another bout of aspiration pneumonia and wound back up in the hospital. And his house call doctor said he has six months left to live. At that point, I went out and I bought my van the same week. I said... All I really want is for my dad to see me go do what I want to do. I want him to see that I'm going to be happy. I want him to know that after he passes, I am going to be okay. I'm going to hurt. Oh boy, am I going to hurt. But I'm going to be happy. So I said to all my family, I said, okay, February 1st, I'm going to be on the road. And I was. I was on the road February 1st. And the one thing that I really, really, really wanted was I wanted my dad to see my van completed. He didn't get to see it completed. He got to see the majority of the build, but he wasn't there when I took off. And he did get to see the platform built. So he knew that I was going to do it and he knew that I was going to take off. But it would have meant the world to me had he gotten to see the day that I left. But I also don't know that if he was still with us, if I would have taken off. Gosh, thank you for sharing that, Sloan. And I, it's a beautiful story and it's so like heartfelt because you really took all those feelings that I think would, you know, really put a lot of people into a place where they want to retreat inward and not like push out and live. And you use that as a motivation to say, like, I want to go do this now. And that's really beautiful. My drive to get on the road has always been 
pretty heavy and pretty much like, I just want to get on the road and I want to start living. And then actually, as my father was on his deathbed, so he had stopped eating, which meant he had about two weeks left to live. It was right around Christmas. And I was handed a piece of paper that said I had an aggressive malignant tumor. That was mind-blowing. I had no idea how this could happen to me. How was this my situation? What the heck was going on? Like, how? How was this happening? And as if my father's disease wasn't enough for me to realize how fragile life is and that it's so important to get out and to live and to do everything that you want to do, that for me was an absolute change in who I am and everything that I do and I will never ever be the same person from the day that I was handed that single piece of paper. All the things that I went through this year have really helped me continue my path and even on the hard days say like this is the life for me because every single sign that I've had in my life has pointed that this is where I'm supposed to be going and Everything is just lined up to keep me on the road and to keep me moving forward. I think of my dad and I think of he would never want me to let fear stop me or to let the pain of what we're going through stop me or anything of that nature. Sit tight. We'll hear more from Sloan after this. Merrill exists to give you all you need to discover the simple yet profound power of the trail. Their goal is to provide thoughtfully designed, rigorously tested products for everybody and every body because they believe that time on the trail is something everyone can and should be able to enjoy. Recently, our team had the chance to hear from Erica Lang, who lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but is taking some time at the end of the summer season to head on a special trip to the Vancouver Island area with her partner. For Erica, it's not picking a trail to hike that's the tough part. It's knowing when and how to slow down. My issue is when we travel, I want to see it all and do it all. And it's really hard for me to sit still and just kind of enjoy where we're at, you know, because I have a list, like a bucket list of places to go. So I'm using this trip as a, an exercise to try to just be present and be still with wherever we're at and not try to like check off all these hikes to go do. When it comes to packing, Erica is particularly excited about getting her favorite pair of Merrill boots ready to hit the trails. My favorite boot right now is the Ontario. They're super lightweight. I like that they're waterproof, so if you do have to walk through, you know, like a stream or something, you're totally fine. And yeah, I like that they're really lightweight. Stay tuned for more stories with Merrill this summer. And to learn more in the meantime, visit Merrill.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-L-L.com. Hi, it's Sloan Still. <laughs> is it Sloan still? <laughs> good, good. Yes, my hotspot <laughs> overheated, so it shut off. <laughs> so midway through our call, Sloan's story was replaced by dead air. When we got back on the phone a few minutes later, it was clear that the summer heat had been a little too much for one of her devices. We had a quick laugh about this because, to be honest, it's happened a lot to me while traveling during these warmer months, and I've even resorted to keeping an ice pack on the back of my computer while taking phone calls or interviews. Maybe it's happened to you, too. Anyway, here we are picking things back up. I could tell when I met you at the Women on the Road gathering that 
and seeing you online before as well. But when I met you, it was really clear that you had this huge motivation and purpose behind traveling and that you were really motivated to get out on the road in that van. And so it's really awesome to see that you're out there. And um, I know for you personally, you went through the decision-making process of whether to build out your camper yourself or to hire somebody to do it. And I'm curious if you want to talk about that at all and what that was like. That was actually a huge decision for me because it was really important to me to build my van myself because my thought process was if anything went wrong in my van, I would like to know how to fix it. And when I bought the van, I was fully prepared to build it and I was going to give myself the six months to build it, to learn everything, to do everything. And as I started to build it, I went to take the floor out and as I was there taking the floor out, with a wrench in my hand, having no idea how to use a wrench, I just sat down in the middle of the floor and started crying. I was so overwhelmed and so tired and so fatigued. I didn't have any mental capacity to learn, to build, or to do anything of that nature. So I remember I'd go to Home Depot and I would sit in the aisles and I'd have panic attacks because... Not only was I trying to build this van and get it done so that way my father could see it, but I was also helping take care of him. So my father was extremely ill and we didn't have caregivers for him. So my mom was his full-time caregiver and I moved in with them to help take care of him because it was no longer a one-person job. It was a two-person job. So for me, taking on the task of building a van, working full-time, and trying to take care of my father while grieving my father's loss while while grieving you know my father was dying I I just didn't have it in me to do it I couldn't think about it I just wanted it to be done and I knew the most important thing to me was to get on the road it wasn't that I built the van so I knew I'd want something really nice when I got in it I'd want it to feel like home every time I got in and I I didn't have that in me so I started looking for a builder and Nothing was falling into place. I couldn't find builders. Everyone was so expensive. And I just felt as though everyone was just going to upcharge me. And I didn't want that. So I actually got extremely lucky. And a friend referred me to my builder. And I started talking with him. And he'd never built a van before. And we kind of started going around about, did he think he could do this? What did he think? And he's like, you know what? I'm willing to try this. So he took on my van and did an absolutely incredible job. I mean, my van feels like a little cabin on wheels to me, and it feels like a home. And I can't say enough good things about him. So he was, he understood my situation, and he knew that I wanted to be very involved in the build. And every single week, he would let me come to the shop and see what they had done, see what they were doing, and approve everything as it was happening, which to me was a huge peace of mind because I didn't want to just turn over the keys and be like, here, build it. I'll come pick it up in eight weeks. Well, and I really admired the thought process that you went through because I think it's becoming more and more common now for folks to hire someone to build out a camper van. But there's also this like 
pride that folks have, and rightfully so when they build out their own vehicle, but you don't have to. And there are definitely times where either you just don't want to or like the circumstances you were going through at the time that, you know, it was a true hardship for you and something that, you know, you need to focus your attention elsewhere, but it doesn't mean that you needed to put your focus on getting on the road completely on hold and you could have some help with that. So um, it was cool to see you go through that decision making process and it seems like it worked out really well. Yeah, I, I would say it worked out very, very well. I'm very happy with my little home. Something that you talk about a lot online that I'd love to spend some time chatting with you about is sobriety. And I know that you recently started a podcast online called Solo Sobriety. And I would just love to hear a little bit about your journey. And I don't know if travel at all has helped you be able to focus on your sobriety, but anywhere that you really want to start with that, I'd just love to start a conversation around sobriety. I've been sober for 13 years now. I got sober June 20th, 2006, and I was actually in a treatment center. So I've been sober since I was 17 years old. Yes, I have never had a legal drink. Do I know if I will ever have a legal drink? No, I know that I will not have a drink today. That is all that I know. For me, sobriety has saved my life. I was trying to kill myself at 17 years old because I was so miserable and so unhappy. And it actually took my third or fourth time of um, alcohol poisoning to be laying on my couch at my mom's house and telling her that I just wanted to die. I didn't want to live. I had absolutely no reason to live. I was in rehab the next week. And I've been sober ever since, which doesn't happen very often. So the fact that I've stayed sober since I was 17 is very unique. And for me, it's given me such a different experience and it's given me such a different life. I've had to grow up quite a bit faster because I couldn't just hang out with college kids and be like, yeah, we're going to go to the bars and we're going to go have a great time. For me, that was always a very challenging place and I'd have to be in the right headspace to go to those places. And as you can imagine, getting sober at 17 and having to go through your last year of high school and then all through college staying sober has its own challenges. And for a long time, I didn't tell anyone that I was actually sober, that I was in recovery. I kept it a secret for probably 10 years of sobriety, and I would always play it off as yeah, I'm sober because I'm a health freak and I'm an athlete and I'm always training. So it helped that I was always in some type of sport and always training for something. So I would always play it off as that, that I didn't drink because of health reasons and I was always trying to be the best athlete that I could be. No one really questioned that, which was great because I didn't want anyone questioning my sobriety. Because if you're questioning my sobriety, I'm going to question my sobriety. And having me question my sobriety is not a good place to be. At 10 years, I think that I had told someone just in passing that I was sober and that I'd been sober since I was 17. And it really opened my eyes that keeping this a secret wasn't helping anyone. And the more I spoke up about it, the better chance I had at making a difference. The reason that I never shared about it was because I felt so much shame 
I felt so embarrassed to tell people that at 17 years old, I was already in recovery. And it didn't help that people would always look at me and say, aren't you, are you sure it wasn't just a phase? Are you sure it wasn't just because you, you wanted to party with all your friends? So I always got a lot of back talk when I would tell people that I was sober and a lot of questions. And I don't want you to question my sobriety. All I need is for you to say, that's great. Just move on. If you don't have anything to say, just say, okay. So it's always been challenging to talk about sobriety because we live in a world where alcohol consumption is so normalized that people don't understand there is something called functioning alcoholics. And for me, I wasn't a functioning alcoholic. I was an absolute disaster. But now I speak up about it because I know there's other people out there that are struggling and there's other people out there that feel so much shame around it. And my whole purpose of everything that I do is to just help one person because I've felt so much pain, so much shame that all I want is for one person to believe that there's a light that they are able to get through it. And even if it's so hard right now, there's someone out there that's willing to help you. And there's somebody out there that could support you, could help you, could hold your hand while you go through this. I don't, I don't want people to feel alone in sobriety because for my majority of my sobriety, I've felt entirely alone. And that's, it's not a good place for humans in, in general. So for an addict, it's an extremely excruciating place to be in. I want to be that helpful hand that gets someone out of that dark hole when they're looking at the bottle or they're looking at the needle. I want them to know it's okay that getting sober is hard, but they can do it. And it will be so worth it because my life has been nothing short of amazing. Well, I mean, you're really going and showing how much you can live if you're struggling with substance abuse, if you do remain sober, like there's so much life out there, like you're embodying that. I always tell people, I say, if I wasn't sober, I wouldn't be alive. And two, I wouldn't be able to experience any of these things that I'm doing right now. I would be so caught up in my disease that I couldn't even fathom living this lifestyle. There would be no way, absolutely no way. Have you found that it's easier as you started telling people that you've been sober for X amount of years? Did it get easier and easier every time? Like, is this something that you introduce to new conversations when you're meeting people on the road? Or is this something that you still kind of keep protected for yourself because it's deeply personal? I don't keep it a secret at all anymore. I'm extremely open about it. And I've found that... Being open about it has been a great thing. It's also the most interesting thing has been I tell people that I'm sober, especially on the road, and people have been so supportive and so helpful about it. They won't use any substance around me. They ask if they can drink around me. And to me, that's something that I've never really experienced because it's always been hush-hush that I'm in recovery, so people just continue to drink around me. 
And for the most part, I'm 100% okay with people drinking around me. There are certain times that I cannot be around a substance because I'm craving really hard or I'm just in a dark hole and I don't want to be around it. And at those times, I will just tell people, I say, hey, you know, like, I just kind of need to go be alone right now and I'll just leave. And no one ever questions anything. I think sobriety is such a beautiful thing. And whether you choose to live 100% sober or you choose to live partially sober, I think being able to experience the ebb and flow of life in your right mind is something magical. I think for you to feel the depth of pain and the depth of joy without any substance, that is life and that is living and that is what I want people to experience. And that is why I talk so heavily about sobriety and about not giving in to the societal norms of going out for drinks with friends. We don't need that. You don't need it. All you need is you. You are enough without any sort of substance. I love that. I spent a really good amount of time on my road trip, probably about eight months sober. Um, because, I mean, I started off not drinking mostly for financial reasons, you know, and there's definite like obvious practical perks to not drinking or not doing substances. And one of them is that you can put your money towards other things. Yeah, I remember standing in a grocery store looking at like boxed wine that I wasn't really excited about. And it became this thing like, do I want to spend 10 bucks on this boxed wine that I don't care about? just because I feel like I should be having this with my dinner. And I was like, well, no, I don't need or want that. And then it started a whole chain reaction of like, oh, well, like, I don't really need this at all. And yeah, it didn't affect my life to not have it. And so that was really fun. It's encouraged me in my adult life to take more breaks from any type of substance because if it works well for you, that's fine, but you don't need it. And I think that's where everyone kind of makes the mistake of being like, you know, mindlessly, unintentionally going through their day being like, oh, I should do this or I need this. And you really don't. We're so based on societal norms and we do what society tells us we should do. And based on society, you should want to get home and have a glass of wine or get home and have a beer. And that's what you should do. But we don't need that in our lives. And that's something that I think we're starting to see a shift in. And I really want to continue to help others be comfortable in sobriety because trust me, it's, it's awkward. Like it can be so awkward when you're sober. Imagine dating sober. It's so weird. I mean, it's so weird, but it's also such an invigorating experience because you feel that person's soul and immediately you get to know if they're worth it or they're not worth it. There's no like, oh, maybe I had some beer goggles on. No, no, no. You know immediately. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and as a female traveling solo too, or really anyone traveling solo, there is just another element too of like having your wits about you and knowing what's going on. If you're not using substances, you're going to be mentally more sharp and aware of what's happening and, and taking in every experience for what it is and being able to assess it as a sober mind, which is really important sometimes. You know, I always like to think that 
when I'm in my vehicle, if something goes wrong, I can always get out of it because I feel a situation because I'm never intoxicated of any kind. So if something doesn't feel right, I will leave immediately. Yeah, that's a good point. You can always drive because you're not intoxicated. Right. Yeah. Before we wrapped up our call, Sloan had some final thoughts for anyone out there facing addiction and would like to find a way to move forward. I would honestly tell anyone that's in a tough position that this will pass. And if you let the fear hold you back, you're never going to get out and you're never going to live. Fear should be your greatest ally because if you feel fear about something, you should probably do it. For me, a lot of it was I felt so much pain and I just made a conscious decision that it was never going to take me down. I was always going to come out on top. And it's hard. It's not easy to look life, the hardships of life in the face and say, not today. Today is my day. But you have to remember that even when it hurts, even when it's dark, even when you're sitting on the floor crying, you're going to have a good day tomorrow. Today will pass. This feeling will pass. Don't let this horrible thing be the end of you. My phrase that I live and die by is, my pain created my purpose. So I believe that we all go through pain, no matter how big or how small. We all have some sort of pain in our life. Let your pain be your purpose. Let your pain be the reason you get up in the morning and you fight. Let it be the reason that you say, I am going to go for that hike. I am going to go for that run. Because it's not going to hold you back. It can't hold you back. Because if you let it hold you back, it's winning. But you need to win at life. Thanks so much to Sloane Thomas for her openness and courageously beautiful sharing in this episode. If you'd like to follow along with Sloane, you can find her on Instagram at Searching for Sloane or tune into her podcast, Solo Sobriety. We've also added some additional resources to our show notes geared towards supporting those facing addiction. So if that's relevant to you or someone you know, be sure to check those out. We'll see you next week, but in the meantime, you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram at Women on the Road and on Facebook, including our Facebook group for community questions, stories, and support, which you can find by searching for Women on the Road podcast. Also, if you'd like to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help, and we appreciate it so much. Thanks again to our sponsor, Merrill. Music is by Jason Shaw and Josh Woodward. Women on the Road is a production of Ravel Creative. Until next time, we'll see you out there.